Welcome to the latest edition of the Digital CXO Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Bizarre, and my guest today is Alan Schimmel, CEO of TechStrong Group, publisher of DevOps.com, Security Boulevard, Container Journal, TechStrong.ai, TechStrong TV, and of course, Digital CXO. Alan, how you doing? Good, Mike. It's good to see you. You hear you? So we have a new title in the family. It's TechStrong.ai, and we want to kind of lead off with a couple of the stories that are over there because they pertain to digital transformation, at least some of the issues thereof. And the first one at the top of the list is the FTC is looking into ChatGTP and OpenAI and how all this data gets used and how sometimes maybe, it, I don't know, defames people. It's kind of getting interesting out there. Well, I, I think it's a question of... Well, they'll have to prove malice, and I don't think a GPT or, or an AI program, it's going to be hard to prove malice by them, you know, but not to get all legal on you, but, you know, for some of these public figures, you you need, there has to be, an, as the movie says, an absence of malice. But, you know, continuing along the legal theme, Mike, there's always, when I went to law school 100 years ago, our con law teacher taught us, there's always a lag between technology and society's ability to regulate, normalize and regulate it. And I I think because so many people have been, you know, sky is falling, running around with AI and, and the potential it has for impact on humanity, we're, we're trying to kind of knee jerk in some reactions here and, and this latest ftc one is i think a great example of it um don't shoot the messenger ai is the messenger here it's just pulling information from what's out there and yes in some cases it's filling in information erroneously but again it, it's not being done with malice i i don't know i i i i'd have a hard time holding them liable I guess libel is an interesting issue, but you could also just be reckless republishing of content, and that might get you into some heat. And also, um, if the person involved isn't really a public figure per se, but there's something yeah. about them. So there's a lot of nuance in that space. But, but, but what's reckless? That they shouldn't take everything on the internet? Well, aren't we all reckless then? Isn't that a bigger problem with society is that we lack the ability as a civilization to discriminate wheat from chafe, nonsense from truth? I mean, aren't all the QRs or whatever the hell they're called reckless then? I think reckless in this regard is if you take something and republish it or take it from chat GPT and use it in some sort of commercial fashion without checking its veracity is reckless. So let me let me let me throw it right back at you. Security Boulevard, our own Security Boulevard. We have approximately four hundred security bloggers in the Security Bloggers Network, whose blogs get published on Security Boulevard. I mean, published is a funny word. It's no more than we take their RSS feed, and and you know we publish that feed if the, the RSS feed. But you or I or any of our terrific editing team is not sitting there and, and looking at the veracity of every single post in the Security Bloggers Network. And when someone points out something that's wrong, we simply fall back on the, well, we're just republishing a feed. 
Well, we also, if it's egregious or just flat out wrong, we'll take it off the security boulevard and take it down. Um, once we're so if we could if we could remove that data from chat GPT or there was a mechanism to let chat GPT to remove it based upon a complaint or what have you, would that suffice? I think that that's ultimately what they're going to have to be able to show that they can do. I think the person or the entity that used chat GPT to create some piece of content that was using false information or what they call a hallucination from chat GPT would just, you know, once alerted, do what we do. You take it down and it's not reckless. It's a reasonable response to a request. But I think the FTC may get a little bit deeper in this and say, hey, you just can't aggregate all this stuff and then pump it out to folks and make it available without having some ability to go back into that system and say, hey, this is not true. So, Okay, so we're going to pick on OpenAI and ChatGPT about it. What about when the Chinese come out with their version of this and it's out? Or or entities that are not necessarily subject to FTC regulation? Are we going to cripple OpenAI and ChatGPT vis-a-vis their international competition? We do that all the time in other industries and other sectors, and the Europeans do it alongside of us because we apply our uh, democratic values to it. But uh, we're not going to suspend our values just because the other guys are in a, in living in an authoritarian society. Yep. All right. Fair enough. So we'll see how this whole thing comes to a head. It's but it'll be interesting. I don't think this means that uh, AI, to your point, is going away anytime soon. In fact, we may have the opposite problem, according to an article by John Willis that's up on techstrong.ia, talking about the rise of shadow AI. We're having the same issue all over again, where organizations are launching projects to the side. Nobody seems to know exactly what they're for or who's sponsoring them, but um, they may not be considering all the ramifications of that. So are we about to have a shadow AI problem? And is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, first of all, I got to tell you, John Willis is doing some amazing things with this AI research he's been doing. You know, you've got John coding again after I don't know how many years. He, he sits at home and is coding and scripting. Spoke to him this morning. When you when you get back here to TechStrong headquarters, I got some interesting stuff to show you. He's working on, but um, the thing about it is the shadow problem. It, I don't know if it's a specifically an AI problem. It's just the same shadow problem we've had. We've had it in IT in general. We had it with cloud. When when you make it so easy for people to spin stuff up. They just got to whip out their personal credit card, if that. And in the case of AI, you don't have to be a crackerjack coder anymore. You just got to do some scripts. And they'll even help you write that. We we have this problem. I, I don't know what the um, answer is to shut it off. But I also feel like, like many Skunk Works projects, there's a lot of sometimes good that comes out of these projects too that then kind of make their way into let's call it mainstream enterprise you know it so i i think any organization looking to manage the shadow it a shadow ai issue 
has to look at it from, we don't want to stifle innovation and our people trying new things, but we just want to know what the heck's going on here, right? And what what it is we have going on. But I I don't know how you manage it, Mike. I I don't know how to, you know. I think that's always the issue, but I, especially for this audience with digital CXOs, they're very familiar with the, you know, if you try to launch something or innovate something within the standard processes, all the corporate antibodies come out and the thing gets killed. Yep. So um, you got to let things breathe somewhere along the line and you got to give people some freedom to you need a lab. Right. I, I get it. The The question is, how far do you let it go before you got to say, oh, hey, I need everything, you know, I need to manage this. I think that is the billion dollar question. It's, you know, when do you kind of let the lab have it? And then when does it get back to corporate? And can that happen without corporate killing the thing? Yep. All right. I think everybody's nodding their head at this one. They all know the same problem, the same issues. But I, I yeah, I just don't think it's going away. All right. Shifting gears slightly back over to Digital CXO, the website, but there was a lot of coverage generated by us and the rest of the world about this new virtual reality Vision Pro thing from Apple. I don't know if you had a chance to look at that, but my take on it was, um, is this interesting computer science and it will eventually probably play out, but we're still very early on any kind of uh, uh reality virtual as outlined by apple and you know are they just doing this to make some noise or do they have a plan i think mark zuckerberg paid them to revive meta (laughs) (laughs) i'm kidding i'm kidding i'm kidding um so here's the thing first of all my understanding of this device is it's not so much virtual reality as it's augmented reality right so no you're going to be in the real world with augmentation kind of stuff over it. That being said, you know, as I sit here looking at my metaverse goggles that have been sitting on my desk here for months now unused, you know, we got it the first week, everybody tried it on, said it's cool. A lot of bunch of people got headaches because it was so heavy on their heads. I'm sure Apple has, you know, in typical Apple, Apple fashion, has done an amazing job of designing a next gen AR, you know, uh, augmented reality uh, VR headset. You know, in many ways, I just think it's like a technology in search of a solution. That's true. And when I looked at what they showed, I was first thing that came to mind was, well, this is great. I can see a spreadsheet or a laptop that uh, application or whatever it may be in my vision but i can also see my wife and the kids and the dog and everybody else and they're all going to be looking at me going stop looking at that thing and pay attention to me so you know i'm not quite clear that this is going to wind up the way people think well i you, you might very well be right it's i mean at, at 3500 a throw it's not exactly cheap either or more than 30 i think it's 3600 but here here let me just play devil's advocate for a little bit i have to confess that at the time when apple announced their iphone i was a proud user of a windows phone and i looked at the iphone and i said 
what's on here that my Windows phone doesn't already do? I could have Windows apps on it. I even had Microsoft Office on my Windows phone. And, you know, we had keyboard and it was pretty cool. And I, I, and when Apple was calling this a new computing device, I didn't think it's not a computing device, it's a phone. They call this, I call them goggles still. They call this new headgear, I forgot what they call it, but it's a new style computing device. And I don't think we'll really see the the success or failure of it until we see what are the killer apps for it. Right? And it may be ones we're not thinking of right now. So I'm willing to give Apple, based upon their uh, history, the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, let's see when it comes out. What What's the cool thing you could do with it? And is that just a cool thing or a must-have? You know, as I sit here on my iPhone. I think that both Apple and Samsung are probably racing to figure out how to get to a $1,000 headset. And then get the ISVs going. So this may be just kind of a teaser of things to come and just getting us some sense of what the future may be. But I don't think this is the thing. Fair enough. I don't, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say you're wrong. All right. Shifting gears. We've all been sitting and watching the economy as of late. Um, some folks say we're in for a soft landing. Some folks say we're not in for any landing, and others are still calling for a hard landing. But do you think folks on their digital transformation initiatives, are they pulling back in the face of headwinds, or are they doubling down because they know that um, when the economy gets uncertain, they got to invest and drive something new and different? So I hate to be the pessimist, but my, you know, what I'm seeing people slowing down. I was talking to a friend of ours yesterday who, from the recru recruiting business, and he basically places code, you know, DevOps engineers and software developers. And he's saying, look, he has no shortage of people looking for job that he could place, but he does have a pretty big shortage relatively speaking, of places to place them at. So I, I was thinking, you know, all these layoffs in the tech space really just affected, you know, quote-unquote tech vendors. But I'm beginning to realize that those tech vendors are reacting to a slowdown in purchases and usage of tech tools, including and heavily investing in digital transformation tools. Now, it's hard to wave a, a broad brush and say, oh, everybody's pulling back, right? When you have an industry that, that quite frankly, has been on a, a bit of a drunken sailor orgy the last three years in terms of hiring and building out, and it slows down a little but doesn't stop, it's very easy to knee-jerk and say, oh, this whole, you know, the golden age is over and, and it's it's dying. No, I, I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying overall, I, I think 
the market is pulling back, slowing down. They're digesting a little bit of all the digital transformation projects that were, you know, put in place over these last couple of years. And then I think also that those those digital transformation projects from the last couple of years, Mike, a lot of times they were put forward at the expense of other sort of non-digital transformation projects that were pushed back. Right. And and now you're seeing a little rebalancing of that as well. I agree. I think a lot of the businesses are struggling to digest a lot of the changes that came through and they underestimated what that would take and what the resistance would be within their own organizations. And so it's simpler to put it on pause for a minute and kind of try to work through some of those issues now under the guise of uh, an economic issue rather than having to admit that maybe we didn't completely think this whole thing through as well as we might, which kind of brings me to my next story here, which is taking the friction out of the digital experience. I know we've talked about this in the past, but I continue to encounter almost daily some sort of digital experience that is just half-assed and probably worse than the uh, physical process it replaced, including, you know, going to a restaurant now, whipping out my phone to get the menu on the QR code to figure out what it is that's on the thing. Frankly, it was just simpler to give me a paper menu and I can figure it out by the time I did all that stuff. Well, remember for a second, why did they do that? Right? It It wasn't, frankly, to save paper. It was because during COVID, they didn't, you didn't want to touch something that was being touched by other people. So maybe that should have died with COVID and we go back to real menus. And, you know, are we, are we blaming digital transformation for that? I think the issue is more we got attached to these QR codes on the table and we didn't think it through enough and say, all right, how do we make it easy or maybe you send me a text with the menu because you know I'm coming and I got a reservation or uh, or I have some way to find that menu before I come into your shop and that doesn't require me to sit there and kind of try to, you know, I mean, I watched my father-in-law try to do this with the QR code and the thing and he just throws down the phone and says, give me yours when you're done. You know? <laughs> I, I, I've been that guy. Um, so is your real issue that... QR codes aren't as usable as we'd like to think. Yeah, or at least in this use case. And I think this time and again... Isn't that a painting with a broad brush, though? I am, but let me come back to the other side. So if I go to, um, you know, my doctor, same thing, right? Came back to visit him, you know, and, and I am handed the same tablet to fill out the same form over again that I already filled out the last time I was there, but it's the same tablet over again. So it's just a paper-based process that has been quote unquote digitized, but not really rethought. And it's just, so I'm sitting there, you know, spending 15 minutes waiting in the lobby there for, you know, my appointment. But meanwhile, I'm like, I answered this, answered this, answered this. And, you know, these aren't things that, you know, it's not about my condition and medical history. It's like, you know, the core data that you're a customer of that they should have. And yet we do it over again. And I feel like a lot of the digital processes out there are just somebody took the paper process and tried to stick it on a tablet and call it new. So that, that I guess, it's a Gen 1 
kind of thing. Um, I, I got to tell you, my doctor, first of all, when I have an appointment, I get an email days in advance to go online and fill that stuff out to save time at the day of the exam. And then number two, though, is generally when I go on to those things, it just says, here's the information we have. Has anything changed or incorrect? And, you know, I, I think what you're seeing is a first-generation paper to electronic kind of stab at stuff. But, you know, good the good news, Mike, and I'm here to give the good news today, is there there is there is help on the way. There are better systems being deployed with that. I think you're right. I think it's uneven still, and folks are still kind of struggling, and some people are better at it than others. But maybe, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier, the time is to take a pause and go, hey, am I really delivering a better customer experience here? Or did I just like take scut work that my staff was doing and push it back onto my customer and annoyed them in, in so doing? Well, I, I tell you, in the case of my doctor that I was just describing my experience, he used to have that old one that every time you had to fill out the form from scratch. But he's gone to like three or four of these dock-in-a-box software shops, if you will, that they use for records and everything. And the last one he has here, I don't even remember the name of it. I wouldn't tell you if I did, I guess. Um, you know, is much better at it than that. So, I mean, part of it is, you know, a lot of these digital transformation trends and innovations you're citing, Mike, are are still relatively new. You know, they haven't been around a long time. Give them a chance to to evolve and to breathe a little bit and and to grow, right? Um, I, I think probably somewhere there's a anatomy of the maturation of a of a digital transformation app that you know says the first gen is just taking paper to electronic format, but then you build it from there. Right. I think you hit it right on the head there. I think that people are forgetting that this is a continuous adventure and it's not a one and done kind of thing, but there's too many people out there with that notion of, well, we bought this and did that and we're done and it just doesn't work that way. Alan, as always, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Mike. It's great to hear your voice and look forward to seeing you in person. All right. And thank you all for listening to our show. You can find this and others on the Digital CXO website, where you'll find show notes to the links to the stories we discussed today. And you can follow us on your favorite social media platform and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you all again next time.